With Candy Crush Saga, the crush is real. For the first time ever, we're celebrating real crushers and their stories inside the game. Find out why they love playing, complete levels inspired by them, and win rewards they chose for you. For a limited time only, see why the crush is very real with Candy Crush Saga. Download now from the App Store or Google Play for free. Ends May 27th. Available to selected players level 25 and over. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello. This year marks the centenary of the Spanish flu, the worst pandemic we've ever encountered. So this week, we're looking at where flu viruses come from, how they evolve, and what we can do to defend ourselves against them. Plus, in the news, scientists find the fossilised fats from the earliest animal life on Earth. An Ig Nobel Prize winner discusses the number of calories you get from cannibalism, and we get gaming all in the name of science. I'm Georgia Mills. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, the Earth is getting on a bit. It's about four and a half billion years old. And we've got evidence that life started here pretty rapidly. It was up and running within about 500 million years. But then things stayed very small, very simple, and some would say very boring for the next few billion years. Everything was just microbes. Then something special happened because around 600 million years ago, large, complex, multicellular life as we know it suddenly appears in the fossil record. But the question is, are these fossils the remains of animals, plants or some other bizarre evolutionary offshoot? No one could tell from their appearance alone. But now scientists in Australia have nailed it by achieving the incredible feat of extracting from one of these ancient fossil species called Dickinsonia, the fats and cholesterols that would have been in the tissue when this thing was alive. So is it an animal, a vegetable or a mineral? Jochen Brox. Dickinsonia is an oval-shaped creature that was lying flat on the sea floor in probably relatively shallow water. It looks a little bit like a big coffee bean with lots of ribs. And uh, the smallest we analysed were about one centimetre, the biggest six centimetres. But there were some true giants that became up to one metre forty. It is a 558 million year old creature. And the fat tells us it was the earliest animals in the record. And they're important, of course, because if these are big animals, then they are some of the earliest big animals, and effectively they're what gave rise to the life that turned into us. I think those those fossils are the most important fossils in the entire geological record. If you have a time machine and you go back to 580 million years ago, go scuba diving, you would need a microscope to see anything at all. Life was microscopic. 
And then about 570 million years ago, those ediacaran creatures appeared. And they became enormous quite quickly, up to two meters. That's when life became big. And that's why it's so important to know what these creatures actually were. So how did you actually decide to pursue this in terms of looking at the fats? And how did you get at the fats? It's extraordinary to think there are fats there, which are more than half a billion years old. The idea for this project, in fact, comes from my PhD student, Ilya Bobrovsky. He contacted me from Russia as a Russian student in 2013 and said, well, Jochen, I found these ediacaran fossils and they're almost mummified. They're preserved organically. I want to extract fat molecules from them, and that should tell me if these creatures were or were not our earliest animals. And I thought it's the most stupid idea I've ever heard. I thought it was totally crazy. But he was a very, very smart student, so I thought, well, you know, he should try it for himself. So I hired him as a PhD student. He extracted these things, and it simply worked. It was completely stunning. How do you get the fats out of the fossils? You can't try this at home. It's A, dangerous, and B, very difficult. So what Ilya does is first he drips hydrofluoric and hydrochloric acid on them so that the organic matter is lifted up from the rock underneath. And then we analyze the molecules using chemical techniques. And those fats have definitely come from the fossil. They're they're the vestige of the the fossil when it was in life. That's right. So you could think, if we actually touched these fossils with our fingers, we would introduce cholesterol, which is the hallmark of animals. And immediately, oh, look, we found an animal, but actually it's our own fingerprints. But we went into extraordinary lengths to exclude contaminants and look exactly where these molecules came from. Modern cholesterol from us humans is a modern living molecule. But what we found is actually a fossil molecule that has changed its structure. And where we can estimate approximately how old it is. And the structure of the molecule fitted perfectly the age and the maturity of the rock we found it in. So you're saying because we can see this slightly different form of cholesterol that is the signature of complex animal life and it's in the context of this fossil, we think it's come from the fossil. But could there not be, for instance, microorganisms living on the fossil that themselves made this funny form of cholesterol or other organisms that have come along since and lived around the fossil and they put the cholesterol there and you're saying, well, it's from the fossil, but it's not, it's from something else. All right, that's a very, very good question. What we found is a little bit more. We can imagine a slab of rock in the middle of this beautiful fossil. Surrounding the fossil is actually a fossilized microbial mats because Dickinsonia was living on the seafloor, living on these microbial mats that are full of cyanobacteria and algae. And these mats were also fossilized around Dickinsonia. So what we did is we analyzed the molecules in Dickinsonia, but also the molecules from the mat surrounding Dickinsonia. Then we compared the two. There was a huge difference. Dickinsonia was full of fossil cholesterol, which is typical for animals, and the surrounding was typical of a different type of molecule, which is produced by green algae. Now you have got this. You've said, you can say at this moment in time we've got what looks like this animal it's not a plant it's not a fungus it's not some of these other possibilities Mm -hmm. how does that change our view of what was going on almost 600 million years ago and ultimately how that line led to us it really changes the story how we perceive our earliest animal ancestors when and how they evolved now that we know that dickinsonia actually was an animal and probably many of those idiacons were animals we know that there was already an enormous animal ecosystem between 570 and 540 million years ago. But they were very peaceful animals. 
they were mostly vegetarians. None of these fossils has bite marks or predation marks. And then about 540 million years ago, those creatures died out and modern type animals appeared. And it's actually quite possible that the modern type animals drove those idiacons to extinction by simply eating them. It was a dog-eat-dog world even then, wasn't it? Jochen Brock's there from the Australian National University and the paper that described that work has just come out in the journal Science. Now, the Nobel Prizes show off the very best of human scientific endeavour. But have you heard of the Ig Nobel Prizes? They've just been announced and Adam Murphy has been speaking to one of this year's winners. Every year, the Nobel Prize is awarded to the most humanity-advancing breakthroughs, the pinnacle of achievement. But they're not what's really important. The Ig Nobel Prizes are awarded to science that makes you laugh before it makes you think. Prizes this year were taken home for analysing the potential of saliva as a cleaning fluid and for the effectiveness of employees using voodoo dolls against their bosses. But what else wins that kind of prize? I got to speak to one of this year's winners, James Cole of the University of Brighton, about the work that earned him such a prestigious honour. I was looking at trying to estimate the calorific value of the human body, but in the context of looking at Paleolithic sites and human evolution. That is to say, did ancient humans eat people? Is that nutritionally useful or does it cost you an arm and a leg? So we know from the archaeological record that human cannibalism seems to be at least a persistent behaviour through our evolutionary journey. One of the, the oldest sites that we have goes back almost a million years. Now we have a very, relatively small fossil record and even within that small fossil record we still see signs on bones like cut marks, long bone breakage, even teeth marks that demonstrate that this cannibalism behaviour was present. What is unclear though is exactly why this behaviour was done. If you compare the calories that you get from a human body, which is what my study was trying to work out, to animals that we know were successfully hunted by our ancestors like the Neanderthals, so this is things like horse or bison or mammoth even, you know, it would seem that we actually aren't terribly calorie rich in comparison to those big animals. You know, the amount of calories you would get from a human being seems to fall kind of where you would expect for an animal of our size but we are just much smaller than a horse or a cow or obviously a mammoth. How did you work out the calorific content of a human being? <laughs> yes, yeah, so no, no humans were harmed during the course of the study, but effectively what I did is I looked at some studies that were done in the 40s and the 50s that looked at the chemical composition of the human body, and they broke down various body parts into its various chemical components. And part of that were protein and fat values. And if you have protein and fat values along with body weight, you can work out calories. With your Ig Nobel Prize, how did that come about? How did you find out you had won that? It was really quite a, a wonderful process, really. So in April, I got a very mysterious email. Friends in Boston are interested in talking to you. And this is what Mark Abrams really does, who's the Ig Nobel person in charge, is that they send out offers of invitation to accept the award in case anybody decides that it's not something that they would quite like. And thankfully, as he says in his welcome speeches and things, pretty much everybody always accepts. But there is always a chance to turn it down. Personally, I was extremely honoured and very pleased to have been offered the award because the Ig Nobel stand for scientific studies that I think in their catchphrase, make you laugh and then make you think. 
And whilst I wasn't necessarily out to make people laugh with my study, I was definitely out to make them think. So I was really pleased that uh, sort of had been recognised on that. Cannibalism is always going to be a controversial subject and a subject of interest and slightly left field. So it's great that that was recognised in that way. And this work is no exception. There's some real meat to this story too. The more that we can understand our ancestors and even our own species in deep time, the more that we can really understand who we are today and and how we got here. And that understanding can only lead to a, a better future and hopefully a more inclusive one that takes into account the full complexity and range of of who we are. But are the Ig Nobels just a silly joke or is there value to them? So the Ig Nobels, I mean, they have a huge audience. I think from last year's ceremony, almost, you know, 100,000 people watched that live stream. So the Ig Nobels have this huge reach and that can only be good for science because science is not just about standing in a lab coat, looking down a microscope, thinking really deeply about something. Science is inquisitive. It can be fun. And the Ig Nobels really capture the essence of that in the fun and quirky way that they present them. It's science that makes you laugh and then think. That was Ig Nobel laureate James Cole speaking with Adam Murphy. And if you'd like to listen to James Cole's Ig Nobel lecture, it's available on the Improbable Research website along with the other winners. And speaking of listening, you are listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and me, Georgia Mills. Still to come, how engineers are using computer games to get young people switched on to the science of electricity. And a hundred years after the worst flu pandemic ever to hit mankind, are we better prepared today or still cruising for a biological bruising? We'll find out. But before that, though, the results of a study that reports are dubbing one of the biggest breakthroughs yet in blood pressure genetics has just been released. Scientists at Queen Mary University of London have looked at the genetic signatures of more than a million people and they've married their genes with their lifestyle factors and their blood pressures. The result is the identification of hundreds of new genes linked to high blood pressure, which should highlight new ways to predict who's at risk, reveal new drug treatments, and even flag up some simple home remedies that are actually surprisingly effective. Mark Caulfield led the study. So we studied over one million people, most of whom are of white European ancestry. The main component of the study was the United Kingdom Biobank, which is the dual in Britain's crown in terms of understanding the genetic basis of our disease. That's half a million people. Then we combined it with other studies from across the world, and that allowed us to reach the number of one million. And it is the size of the study and the precision of the analysis that's allowed us to find these loci for blood pressure. And when you look at these these genetic regions that seem to be important for blood pressure, what emerges and why does this matter? How does this affect our ability to to diagnose, manage and, and better manage high blood pressure? So actually measuring the blood pressure this way would not be efficient. But what this does do is it gives us new biological insights into why some people's blood pressure are higher than others. The other correlations that we found in the project were with certain treatments. So, for example, we found evidence that a fairly new diabetic treatment, which is very effective at lowering blood sugar, that has also been shown to reduce adverse heart disease and stroke, the target for that drug is a gene for blood pressure. Could we take that medicine and use it more often in people with high blood pressure and diabetes? So effectively treating two things at once. So this is about understanding how we can get new insights into the biology that will allow us to 
develop new therapies or approaches that will improve the care of people across the world with this burgeoning epidemic of high blood pressure. But will it actually achieve that lofty goal, though, Mark? Because I put it to you, we've known about some of the genes that lead to obesity and overweight for a long time, but we've got record numbers of people on Earth with problems related to carrying too much weight. So at what point are we going to see this, this magic sort of translation of the genetic information that you're flushing out with amazing studies like this one into a pill that I can take that means I'm not going to have the same heart attack and stroke risk? I can give you some examples. So in our own work at my institution, we've been working on a pathway that we discovered a few years ago, and that involves a chemical in our body called nitric oxide. When you drink beetroot juice, just 250 mils of beetroot juice, which contains very rich concentrations of a chemical called nitrate, which is converted in our bodies to this nitric oxide and opens up blood vessels and lowers blood pressure. We've shown now in convincing studies in people with high blood pressure, this can be taken as effectively a form of lifestyle treatment. So you can go into supermarkets as a result of this research and buy that for yourself. Why this is popular with patients is that patients do like the idea of a lifestyle modification as opposed to a just a pure chemical tablet. The other areas where this has been particularly helpful is observations made in high cholesterol which can run in families have allowed us to invent an injection that you can give once every couple of weeks or once a month and it profoundly lowers cholesterol so it's not simply about discovering new things that don't translate into the clinic. So if I take the average person in the population with high blood pressure what what fraction of people can I explain their high blood pressure on the basis of the genes that your study and the ones we already knew about Tell us. An important feature of this study, which makes this an incredibly good question, we estimate from this study that we've explained 27% now with all of the known findings and the new ones we report here of the influences on blood pressure. That said, though, Mark, that still leaves two-thirds of the field open, doesn't it, unaccounted for. Where is that two-thirds to three-quarters of the cause of blood pressure, then, if you can only account with a huge study like this for... 27% of it. I think probably the best way to describe this is there may be many routes for people's blood pressure to be elevated. That means that the studies that have been done to date, mostly we've measured the common molecular signatures and not the rare ones. Now, with whole genome sequencing and other technologies, we're able to read the entire genetic code of a human and therefore we get their entire blueprint for life. And then we can measure the rare variations that could be contributing significantly. So I believe we will gain access within the next few years to the remaining missing heritability for blood pressure. That was Mark Caulfield, and those findings were published in the journal Nature Genetics. Now, from medicine to engineering. Engineers at the University of Cambridge have launched a professional computer game to enable players to learn how electricity works. It's called Wired, and software engineer Dermot Campbell and engineering technologist Richard Prager are its creators. Welcome to both of you. Dermot, first, can you just give us an overview as to what the game's like? What's it like to play? What do you do? What's the objective? So it's a video game, and you control a character who has to get to the top of a building. And she goes into various rooms, and when you go into a room, you'll find that there'll be uh, mechanical doors and platforms that can rise up and fuel cells and switches. But initially, nothing moves because nothing's wired up. 
So what the player has to do is first wire up all the components in the room and then they can run through it, pulling the switches, jumping on the platforms and get out of the room. And the story is basically get through each room to escape from well, this building. Well, well OK, yes. Yeah. So, so that's the puzzles. The, there is a story that runs through it because the player encounters these um, sort of old cine projector screens at various uh, points where there's this slightly eccentric professor who explains about some of the electrical concepts. So not concepts. like real life then. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and, and that imparts some of the learning as well. So That's you're, right. so you're that doing some of the teaching the learning. through there. Absolutely. But you also then get to find out who that professor is, what his relationship is to the player character, and the story evolves through that. I, I like to think of it as perhaps a cross between the old sort of Royal Dahl tales of the unexpected, perhaps mixed with a um, an open university style lecture. Well, Richard, you're the very <laughs> non-eccentric professor who's a part of the project. But what was your motivation for actually doing this in the first place? Why, why did you turn the Department of Engineering effectively into a software house? Why have you gone down this route? Well, we had this opportunity through a sort of educational project funded by the Underwood Trust to do something a bit outlandish and to try and go in an educational direction that hadn't been done before, even if it was rather high risk. And we thought, wouldn't it be amazing if we could create a normal video game, which was attractive as a video game, but had inside it the idea of the fun of engineering problem solving in a genuine, natural way, so that we would lure teenagers into solving engineering problems so it's without sort of them realising. subversion, if you like. Yeah, sort of, exactly. Like. But it is actually good as a game in its own right, isn't it, Dermot? Was that your motivation? Because I've played it and it's and it pretty addictive. Yes. I mean, I think there's... A, so a lot of educational games tend to be delivered through the classroom. So they only ever end up having to be more fun than the lesson that they're replacing. And, and the whole idea with Wired was we're saying, well, let's show that engineering is genuinely fun. So... Um, let's deliver it through gaming websites instead of the classroom so people can choose to play it. So it needs mm. to be at least as fun as other games that people choose to play. Yeah, so, that, so all the way through from the beginning, it's been designed with fun as being as its primary driving force. Well, I asked uh, a young person to have a go of it. Would you like to hear what, uh, what <laughs> yeah, they made? I recorded having a go. My name's Amelia and I'm 12 and I've just been playing this really fun game called Wired. You have to wire up circuits which make doors and platforms move so you can get around a school. I learned what a short circuit is, that you have to wire up machines correctly, you have to have a power supply to the machine and also you can't have too many machines connected to a power supply and the more machines you have connected to a power supply the machines will go slower this is a good game because i'm learning something and it's definitely fun to do when you're bored in the holidays quite an endorsement that why did you go down the electricity route there richard why choose that subject I think that came from interviewing students for admission over many, many years where I was surprised by how many people didn't really understand the concepts behind voltage and current, perhaps because you have to sort of get both of them at the same time. You have to get voltage in order to get current. You have to get current in order to get voltage. And I thought maybe this is something that if we could get people to feel it, to experience it, to actually interact with it rather than just see it as a load of equations on paper, it might help. Dermot, how have people received this? I mean, obviously my N of one study there seems right. to receive an enthusiastic appraisal. But what about the wider community? What sort of feedback are you getting? And also one criticism levelled at projects like this is 
it's one thing to do some public outreach and some engagement, but it's another to actually change people's mindsets. Have you got any sort of evidence that this is doing what Richard's saying it aspires to do, which is to educate people more about the science of electricity? So the game has only been out for a few weeks. So all we've got so far is, uh, I guess, feedback on the gaming websites where it's been up. And we've had lots of really positive messages up there. People just saying it's very fun and I've learned a lot. And I guess what's gratifying is that because it's up on a gaming website, people are comparing it to other games and saying it's a good game. It's fun. But it's not divorced from the education. They're saying, actually, it's fun that I learned stuff as well. So the informal feedback has been very positive. But I think it's too early to say, yeah, we haven't done formal studies about its educational effectiveness. I guess time will tell. Dermy Campbell and Richard Prager, thank you both very much. And uh, if you would like to have a go of the game Wired, you can download it or you can also play it in your web browser. It is completely free. We've set up a hot link to get you there quickly. You go to nakedscientist.com forward slash wired. And if you'd like to follow up on any of the news stories we've been covering this week, the transcripts and references are on our website at nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith. She's Georgia Mills. And now it's time for this. They are placed on the cots until every bed is full and yet others crowd in. The faces soon wear a bluish cast. A distressing cough brings up the blood-stained sputum. In the morning, the dead bodies are stacked about the morgue-like cordwood. It is absolutely ridiculous to think of yet lifting the ban on the close of public places. Everyone is worn out and people are exhausted. And who would care for others who would be stricken? I have been in houses where six and seven are ill in one room, with no one to give them a drink, no one to help them. This sickness has struck almost every home. One, two and three in a family being ill, and in many families it has been fatal to more than one member. Deaths are still occurring, and we are yet in great danger. The Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 was one of the deadliest disease outbreaks in human history. So in this half an hour, in recognition of its centenary, and as the Northern Hemisphere heads into this year's new flu season, we're putting the influenza virus under the microscope. The 1918 pandemic coincided with the end of World War I, which is thought to have catalysed the pace with which the disease took hold. To guide us through what happened that year is Anglia Ruskin University historian Sean Lang. Welcome, Sean. Thank you. Why was it called Spanish flu? It's terribly unfair because it didn't start in Spain at all. In fact, Spain was no more reflected than anywhere else. But because the war was on, when it started among, for example, Amer- American troops and when it's underway in Germany, of course, they didn't want the other side to know of a weakness. So they didn't report it. Spain was neutral in the war. So there was no particular reason to, to hold back. And so the first major reports came out of Spain and everyone assumed it was it started there, which it didn't. So they were, the, they were being honest and they got all the blame. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. They did try to blame it on the Portuguese, incidentally, but uh, they were, that, that didn't stick. And how many people did it affect? How far around the world did it spread? It spread absolutely all around the world, every continent. There are major outbreaks, for example, in uh, Western Samoa, where the population was absolutely decimated. Alaska, North America, all across Europe, Asia were very, very badly affected. In terms of the number of people who died, there's a lot of argument about figures because it's not easy to get accurate death figures because not everyone kept them. Nevertheless, we reckon it's about uh, 50 million 
upwards. The highest estimates were about 100 million, probably some sort of 50, 70 million, something like that. Now, to put that into context, the total number of deaths in the First World War is about 17 million. Wow. And of course, these 50 plus million who die, all within the space of a year. In other words, it's very concentrated compared with the, the First World War, which, of course, is spread over from 1914 to 1918. So it's absolutely devastating. And there's no part of the world really which is immune. Right. And people have just sort of made it through one of the biggest wars in the history of the world. And then this hits us. Absolutely. Yes. Of course, you've got a lot of the soldiers coming home at the end of the war in November 1918 or thereafter. you know, And so you get people who, who've come home, as you say, survived the war and expecting now to enjoy peace. And, of course, their families expecting to have them home after the war, and then the death comes. So it's absolutely tragic. Uh, of course, you do have plenty of people who catch it and survive, but then because they're debilitated as well. So it's, it is an absolutely global tragedy, no question. And it's been mentioned that this, as pandemics go, is the sort of the big hitter. Mm. Was this linked with the war? Yes and no. Um, clearly, there are areas like, for example, the Midwest of America or indeed China, where you can't really blame the effect of war. For example, you haven't got uh, population weakened by naval blockade or you haven't got you know, the direct influence of the war. On the other hand, where you do have that, where you have the population in Germany, for example, which is very badly hit, and you've got a population which is very, very badly weakened because of a naval blockade which cut off food supplies, then it, it clearly seems to have uh, lowered people's natural resistance to it. So, yes, it, it's linked with the war, but it doesn't seem to have been caused by the war. Right. And who was affected the worst by the flu? Ah, now this caught people out because the medical authorities tend to assume that the obvious candidates would be children or old people. So quite often, for example, in Cambridge, you, you have schools shut down or children excluded from places of public entertainment, this sort of thing. But actually, and this really caught them out, it was young people apparently in the prime of health who were the most vulnerable. So you know, young men, young women in their 20s. So it really did catch them out. And of course, it meant that the measures they were taking weren't very effective because they were aimed at the wrong people. So, yeah, I'm afraid it's sort of healthy young men and women in their 20s. Uh-oh. Yeah, um, don't want to worry. <laughs> a little bit worried. Was there any treatment or medicine around at the time? Well, because they didn't really know what was causing it, they, there's no sort of one effective measure that is taken. There was a sort of vaccination that was, that was used, or at least it was a preparation. And it does seem to have had some success against the, uh, those cases which were linked with pneumonia, but it didn't actually have act against the flu. But they tried everything. In Cambridge, there was a wonderful thing, I can't remember the doctor's name, but it was his pink pills. Take pink pills and you'll be fine. A lot of the advice was simply go to bed, quarantine, or you know, keep away from other people, keep away from crowded areas, keep the windows open, and my favourite one, which I discovered, uh, advertised was Bovril. Uh, Bovril <laughs> actually advertised itself as rendering you influenza proof. How did they get that idea? Do we know? Was it just... Was it just Very being... good marketing. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it's the idea that because people tend to think of flu as being like a bad cold. I mean, very often people have got a bad cold and they say they got flu, which they haven't. But they, people got, they've got that sort of link in people's minds. So, you know, the idea is that you go to bed with a hot, you know, nice hot drink. Uh, it, it'll see you through. So I, I think that's really what's going on. On there. Thank you very much, Sean. We'll hear more from you later. But for now, that's Anglia Ruskin University historian Sean Lang. But what actually is the flu? That's the key question, isn't it? Wendy Barclay is a virologist at Imperial College in London. So flu is a disease caused by a virus, the influenza virus. That virus gets into our bodies 
when we breathe in droplets from somebody else who's been infected by the virus and then those droplets containing the virus go down into our nose and throat and into our deeper lungs perhaps and like all viruses it's an absolute parasite so it has to actually get inside our cells and once the virus is inside our cells it takes over the cells reproduces itself kills the cell and then thousands of new viruses copies of the original uh, come out and spread. And how does it actually make us ill? Why do we feel so ghastly when we've got it? I think there are two ways. Some of the first symptoms are sore throat. That could well be just because the virus in replicating in those first few cells in your throat have killed that important protective barrier, which normally protects from incoming dust particles, etc. And if you haven't got those working, then all those dust particles which are in the air can really hurt as they land on the nerves below. But the other reason that you feel so really bad with flu is that your own immune system recognises that these cells have been invaded by a virus and responds by releasing chemical messengers. And they also, at the same time as telling the cells where to come induce fever and aches and pains, lethargy, feeling hot because your blood is now full of all these chemicals which have been released from the infected cells and are trying to signal to other immune cells to come and help. Now where did flu come from in the first place? So all flu viruses are not human at all, they are bird viruses. There are lots and lots of different types of flu, which means that antibodies against one wouldn't protect you against another. And they're all out there, at least 16 of them, sitting in the wild birds of the world, ducks and geese and also seabirds that migrate through very large distances but also live in huge colonies. Fantastic place for a virus to hang out because there's always new hosts for it to infect. It actually is a virus that infects the intestines of those birds and it comes out into the water. The birds all land on the lakes and the water on the lakes is full of flu viruses that the birds can drink and take up and get reinfected. So how did it get from being a bird virus to being a human virus and when did that happen, do you think? I mean, we know from historical records that pandemics, probably of flu virus, happened thousands of years ago, probably when humans started living in larger numbers in cities. How does a virus transform from being a bird flu into a human flu is the matter of intense research because it will help us ultimately predict the chances of pandemics happening. And it's certainly not a single step. There are at least three changes and probably more that a bird virus would need to make to be a successful human virus. And it's a bit like rolling a dice. If you want to get three sixes all at once, that's not the most likely. And therefore, we don't get pandemics all that often. But out there in nature, that dice is being rolled all the time. Is it fair to summarise then and say, well, we've got this flu virus, it started off in birds, at some point it jumped into humans and we ended up with human forms of flu which which we keep on handing on to each other year on year but there remains this enormous reservoir of bird viruses that periodically can do that jump again and when they do that jump again then we get a new kind of flu in humans. Yeah, that's absolutely it. I mean, certainly what we know is that in 1918, a virus came across that had recent ancestry in birds, uh, became a human virus, and then stayed with humans for the next three or four decades. And do we know what factors 
probably encouraged that jump in 1918 to make that virus seed into humans and produce that devastating pandemic? We don't know for sure whether or not the circumstances that were present in 1918 were the perfect storm, if you like, for that virus to make that jump. Certainly there are theories that when so many young men were moved into these huge army camps and lived in very close quarters, the chances of a virus accumulating the right numbers of mutations and then spreading onwards to others were increased. So there is some theory that that special circumstance sort of allowed the virus to emerge in that way. A number of people have looked at the cross-section of the population who succumbed to the 1918 flu and it looked a bit unusual because in most winters you get lots of young people and lots of elderly vulnerable people who were succumbed to flu. But with this, we saw lots of previously hale and hearty young people dying of this. Why would there be that difference? Yeah, it's a really excellent question. I think there are two main theories. The first is the, the cytokine storm theory. So that says that much of the symptoms of flu in a human is down to the person's own immune system, as we've discussed, sort of sending out those chemical signals and responding to the viral infection. And in 1918 flu infections, those responses may well have been inappropriately big. If that's the case, people who are the healthiest and would make the biggest immune response are the people who would get very sick. So 25 to 45-year-olds with their healthy immune system kind of overreacted and consequently ended up that the lungs were full of, of inflammatory cells. The other theory relies very much on this idea which is quite popular at the moment of the flu that you experience in your very early life kind of sets the scene for the rest of your life. Life and affects the way you respond to subsequent flus. And so if we historically trace back to when were previous pandemics recorded in the world, certainly in 1889, we think there was a previous flu pandemic. And that may have somehow set the scene for people to respond differently to the next pandemic virus that came along. That was Wendy Barclay from Imperial College, London. Sean Lang is still with us. Sean, so right now we see adverts a lot at this time of year saying, you know, get vaccinated for the flu. When did the idea of vaccines start? When did this start being used to tackle the flu? For the flu, it's not really till the 1930s when the actual virus is finally identified and uh, and, and vaccines are, are on offer. The trouble is that vaccination had very different attitudes then from what we have nowadays. So nowadays, yes, you can encourage people to go and get your flu jab. But A, we've got you know, the sort of knowledge, and B, of course, we've got the NHS. Whereas in the 1930s, there'd been a lot of resistance to uh, vaccination programmes run by government. Not so much in this country, not for a long time, you know, but out in uh, other parts of the empire, for example, there'd be, I mean, there'd been very, very serious resistance to plague measures taken in, in India. So it was something that governments were relatively wary about imposing. So it's on offer rather than being actually being doled out properly. So anti-vaccination mindsets are not a new thing. Not at all. No, no. Uh, I mean, it goes right the way back to the days of Edward Jenner. And people sort of thought he was mad to put an actual disease into you. And you've got sort of cartoons and you've got people sort of thinking that therefore it would you know, have cows sprouting out of your arms. But, um, but more recently, uh, or rather when I say more recently, I'm a historian. I think in you know, the 1880s, 1890s, <laughs> it's fairly recent, you know, to me. But there was this, uh, you know, very, very uh, strong attitude on the part of governments, but, uh, as I say, particularly in, in uh, colonial governments, and also towards the poor, that the idea was that this sort of, 
uh, dirt, disease, was somehow your fault and that the state would tell you what you ought to be doing with yourself. And there was resistance to it and was resent- resentment. So it's very politically sensitive, the whole issue of vaccination. Mm, then and now. So thank you very much, Sean. Now, one very powerful way we can defend ourselves, of course, is through the use of vaccines. The way these work is they educate the immune system so it can recognise an infection in the future. They contain components from viruses or bacteria and these stimulate the production of immune molecules which are called antibodies. Now this means that if the infection is encountered for real later, these stick on to the incoming disease agents and they smother them, blocking the infection. But how are flu vaccines that we use today actually made? Izzy Clark went to meet Otmar Engelhardt, who's at the National Institute for Biological Standards and Control. They're responsible for checking the quality and the safety of UK medicines and treatments. Flu is a very special case because flu viruses change constantly. So if you're given a vaccine in a particular year, you induce an immune response, you induce antibodies against the viruses of that year. But the virus evolves, changes, and tries actually to escape the immune response in the population. So one or two years later, the virus will look differently. It will have different, if you want, a different coat uh, or slightly different maybe patterns on its coat. And therefore, the, the antibodies are not so good at recognizing it anymore. And you need to induce new antibodies. And that's why you give a new vaccine every year to keep up with the, the changes in the virus. And that's the pesky thing about the flu virus. You can get vaccinated against flu, but it can change and evolve, or as Otmar explains, disguise itself. And so our immune system doesn't always react and attack it, which is why vaccines are so important. But how do we make them? It was off to the lab. We are in a room where we have incubators and fridges to keep uh, chicken eggs. Chicken eggs, what what have they got to do with the flu? (laughs) Some viruses, and influenza virus in particular, grow very well in uh, embryonated chicken eggs. And it's uh, technology for influenza that was developed in the 40s. So can we see any of these eggs? We can. So we have an incubator here with uninfected eggs. Oh, wow. It's it's quite warm in there as well, actually. The eggs like to be warm. They are slightly different from your normal egg that you buy in your supermarket we shine a strong light through the egg and then you can see the interior. The box that you're using to shine this light literally just looks like a bit like an old cinema projector. I feel like we're going to get the slides out or something. (laughs) Yes, it is a a very simple equipment and you put the egg in front of it and all of a sudden you see the interior. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. So you can see the embryo, you can see blood vessels. The egg basically lights up to a sort of orangey-reddy colour and we can see all of these small blood vessels going through it okay so how do we take an egg and then actually get a flu vaccine by the end of it okay so you need a flu virus to start with so you take viruses from patients which you analyze year round and you pick the ones that are most appropriate to be in the vaccine and then we use a syringe to inject the virus these viruses often don't grow well in eggs so you need to change them you need to manipulate them so that they grow better and there are a few labs in in the world and one of us is our lab that does this process to change the viruses so that they can grow well in eggs okay so we inject this virus into an egg and then what happens okay so the virus has grown in the egg so you have live virus in the the main fluid in the egg you can harvest this fluid from the egg which is not yet suitable for a vaccine so you need to do further processing steps so you want to get rid of some of the egg components, but you also want to concentrate the virus so that you have a a higher amount of 
inactivated virus there to induce an immune response. And in many cases, there's further purification involved to enrich the components that you actually want in the vaccine, the coats of the virus that induce the, the relevant antibodies. So how much of this vaccine could you get, say, from one egg? Not very much, probably one or two doses, depending on the yield. Oh, wow. So we're going to need a lot of eggs to, say, vaccinate the whole of the UK. Yes, it's millions. This is the most reliable way, but what are some of the weaknesses to this method? Mm. One is dependence on eggs. So if the chicken flocks were wiped out by a chicken disease, there wouldn't be a substrate to make vaccines. So that would be a problem. And using eggs, is this the only way we can produce vaccines? No, it isn't. Uh, There are other methods. In recent years, manufacturers started to use cell or tissue culture to make vaccines. So they're using cells, infect them with virus, harvest the virus again, and then the process is very similar to the egg-based process. And it was off to a lab to explore this alternative method, cell culture. I don't think I get to wear lab coats enough, personally. Otmer led me to a corner of the room that had three incubators. They actually looked like high-tech mini-fridges, but they'd be the worst fridges ever, considering they're kept at 37 degrees Celsius. And then he pulled out a rather surprising plastic container. In there are the plastic flasks with the cells inside. I wasn't expecting it to look a bit like a clear hip flask. <laughs> so yeah. we've got this, this plastic container with this orangey-looking liquid through it. What is actually in here? OK, on one of the larger surfaces of this flask, the cells are attached to the surface, and then we have a liquid, a medium, which keeps the cells happy, gives them nutrients. We can take off the the liquid on top, wash the cells, and then take a virus in a small volume, put it on, add some more medium, and the virus will infect the cells in the flask, and we put them back into the incubator, and two or three days later we can come, and the viruses will have destroyed the cells and will be found in the liquid, where we can harvest the liquid and then do with the virus what we need to do. Now that seems more straightforward method than, say, all of the eggs. It is a more modern way, and, and some other vaccines are made in uh, in cell culture other than influenza virus. I'm sure this will be a method that increases in use. Whether it will be the main method, we'll have to see. So whether our vaccines are using fertilised egg or whether it's cell culture, who exactly needs these vaccines? Should we all be getting them? Many people need the influenza vaccine. Different countries have different vaccine recommendations. In the UK, it is recommended that the elderly get the influenza vaccine every year. It's also recommended that at-risk groups of younger age, uh, so certain conditions, heart conditions, lung conditions, diabetes, get the vaccine every year to protect them from influenza, where in these people it can create more severe disease. And also children. There's now a program in the UK of vaccination for children that is expanding and lots of children are getting the vaccine. Fascinating stuff. That was Ockmar Engelhardt and he was speaking with Izzy Clark. Now, Sean, are pandemics like this something we have to deal with very often? Can you tell us about some of the other big pandemics that have hit since 1918? Well, luckily not too often. We haven't had anything quite on the scale of, of the Spanish, I call it Spanish, totally unfair, um, flu outbreak. But of course, there have been uh, major outbreaks I mean, in, the, in the Second World War. In the conditions of the war, you have things like the outbreaks of typhus in, in, in camps and that sort of thing. Um, but in more recently, the biggest one, of course, was AIDS in the 1980s or starting in the 1980s. And then we've had, of course, the, the bird flu outbreak and the 
more recently, I suppose, um, Ebola. Um, so the, the age of, of the pandemic not only hasn't passed, but the a, a judgment is that it's highly likely, it not say um, uh, inevitable, that there'll be another major flu outbreak, for which I hope, from the sound of what we've been hearing, would be better prepared than they were in 1918. But you can never be complacent. Right. Yeah, that's quite scary because you yeah. think these are these are things from the past, but a lot of the pandemics you just mentioned are in very recent years. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, yes. It's, it's not just going back into long, long ago, you know. And um, of course, it is always changing. And so there are different variants of flu. And we tend to put a lot of faith, of course, that we just think science will solve it. But of course, the diseases or the viruses respond to it. And so new strains come in. And above all, I would say you've got to have international cooperation. And the more that becomes under strain, the harder it will be. Right. So constant vigilance and cooperation. Thank you very much, Sean. Now, as we've heard, every year human strains of the flu go circulating around the world. And as they do so, they subtly change their appearance. So this means we need to update the vaccines so that we make the immune system still able to recognise them. So how do scientists know what to put into these new vaccines and when to make those changes? Derek Smith advises the World Health Organisation on this very topic. He's based at the Zoology Department at the University of Cambridge. It's really a remarkable global effort orchestrated by the World Health Organization to do this. There are thousands of people around the world in GP offices and in hospitals who see people who come in with respiratory diseases that look like they could be flu. Take a throat swab and that swab is sent to the National Influenza Center in that country. The strains there are analyzed to see if they really are flu and if they are, they're sent to one of five international WHO collaborating centers. Tokyo, one in Melbourne, Australia, Beijing, China, Atlanta in the US, and in the UK in London at the Crick Institute. There the strains are analyzed in a great detail in terms of how they differ from other viruses and how our immune systems will see them different. Now when you say you're analyzing them, what are you looking for? How do you tell one strain of flu apart from another? This is the key question. First of all, it is laboratory work to test whether or not strains of flu that are already in the vaccine will be protective against the new strains of flu that may be emerging across the world. I see. So I send you, let's say, a sample of flu that I got from Joe Bloggs, and you're asking, does the vaccine produce antibodies in someone I give it to that if they met that virus tomorrow, it would stop it? That's exactly right. And as well as this happening locally in over 130 countries worldwide, these five international centers coordinate this and do all the laboratory work and then collaborate with our laboratory here at the University of Cambridge, where we also look at them with mathematical and computational methods to track the evolution of these viruses for the purpose of keeping that vaccine strain updated. On a practical level, how do you actually do those experiments to know if the vaccine is going to defend me against that particular strain I got from Joe Bloggs last week? Is that somebody physically with a test tube and some virus and some cells growing these things and and proving, yes, the immune response will, will stop Chris Smith from catching this virus? That's absolutely right. It's 20,000 viruses a year tested in exactly that way to see whether or not those strains are going to protect Chris Smith this year. So it's quite a lot of guesswork then, because you're you're getting samples that are doing the rounds now, but this is going to inform the vaccines you're going to make, you know, into the future. Yeah, this is absolutely the key thing. And in some ways, 
it's absolutely not guesswork because this is a very well-oiled machine and a comprehensive surveillance and very good analyses. But the point that you raise, the virus has six to eight months to go do its own thing in those intervening in that intervening time and may evolve such that the strain that's in the vaccine is no longer a perfect match. The four major types of flu that circulate, there's a strain of flu for each of those in the vaccine. And when there is one of these mismatches, it's typically just for one of those types of flu. That one component of the vaccine, that one-fourth of the vaccine protecting against one-fourth of the strains that are circulating doesn't do as well as we would all like it to do, and people are not as well protected against getting infected. Even in those cases, they are protected against the other three strains of flu, main strains that circulate. They're also typically protected against severe disease from that other strain. They may still get a cold or something that feels more like a cold. They're less likely to die or end up in hospital. Can you use, say, maths or, or other techniques to try and anticipate what the next move might be on the part of the virus, perhaps informed by what's happened in the past, to make your guesswork odds a bit better? Absolutely. And this is a research program that we have been doing for something like 15 years now to see if we can understand what are the deep evolutionary processes that are going on? What are the constraints or are there constraints on how the virus might evolve? And it turns out that there are constraints to the extent that we think that we can predict this. And there is a new generation of flu vaccines that that are being produced where the strain that's in the vaccine is not the best representative of the strain that's circulating in February, but is actually an educated guess of what's going to circulate the following year. These are vaccines that will enter clinical trials in about two years from now. It's a bit like when you're driving down the motorway. You should always look at the car, not directly in front, but the one in front of the car in front, because you see the brake lights go on on that one before the car in front of you is going to brake. And so it gives you advance warning. You're sort of saying, well, if I look at what the virus is doing now and then I second guess where it's going to be later, I'll get a much more accurate picture. This is exactly what's happening. And, and for me, it's a really beautiful integration of, of basic science, evolutionary biology, and fantastic surveillance because... The other thing that we have when we drive down the motorway is we have the experience of doing this before. And because there is this great surveillance over so many years, one can go back and do retrospective studies to imagine that it is 1989 and then see if we can predict what happens in 1990, in 1991, 92, and know whether or not the methods are working or not. And Derek has promised me he's coming back in two years' time when the clinical trial launches and he'll tell us how he's getting on. That was Professor Derek Smith. And thank you to our other guests this week. We had Sean Lang, Wendy Barclay and Otmar Engelhardt. And now to finish, it's time for Question of the Week. And Adam Murphy has been stuck on this question from Tom. Why is Bluetack sticky? Bluetack is everywhere, probably in every home and every office, holding up our posters and our notices. But figuring out what's in this adhesive puts us in something of a sticky situation. To learn more, I spoke to Jennifer Gochran, a researcher in Dublin City University. We don't know exactly what Bluetech is made of because it's a trade secret, but we do know that it contains something called hydrocarbon polymers. Hydrocarbon polymers are included in most glues and are what turns Bluetech into an adhesive. Polymers, which are molecules that form these long chains, do tend to be quite sticky because... 
From a chemical point of view, they have a lot of hydrogen on their surface, which likes to form very strong physical bonds with anything that they touch. So that's part of it. But is that the whole sticky story? It's actually the squishy nature of the blue tack that's the real trick, though. Blue tack is a putty-like substance that's movable and able to deform. Blue tack seeps into any little indents on the surface that it's sticking to, and this makes it even stickier. That might be why there's still blue tack on the walls from posters that covered my childhood bedroom. So when you press hard enough, it forms a very smooth, flat surface against your surface and pushes all the air out. This creates a vacuum, which is a very difficult thing to break. It's like when you stack two wet glasses together. The water pushes all of the air out and it's very difficult to pull them apart again. You have to twist them apart or disrupt the water somehow. Or just like a plunger. This also explains why blue tack doesn't feel sticky at first in your hand, but does get stickier the more you handle it. It's because it's starting to fill all those nooks and crannies, getting you into a sticky situation. Thank you, Jennifer. I'm sure everyone was glued to their speakers. Next week, we'll be tackling this muddy question from Daniel. If I stand in the shallow end of a swimming pool, I don't feel the pressure of the water around my legs. But if I put my wellies on and stand in a deep puddle, I do feel the pressure of the water on my lower legs. Why is this? We'll have an answer to that question that won't dampen your spirits next week. If you have an answer or a new question you'd like us to look into, go ahead and email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientist, or join in the debate on our forum. That's at thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that's all we've got time for. Thank you for listening and do join us next time when we're going to be diving into the world of cosmetics. Meanwhile, thank you to Adam Murphy and Izzy Clark for putting the show together. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University, where it's supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith, and until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. With Candy Crush Saga, the crush is real. For the first time ever, we're celebrating real crushers and their stories inside the game. Find out why they love playing, complete levels inspired by them, and win rewards they chose for you. For a limited time only, see why the crush is very real with Candy Crush Saga. Download now from the App Store or Google Play for free. Ends May 27th. Available to selected players level 25 and over.